Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. And why not? That's what we want to know. Anyway, hello, welcome. This is the C86 show, and this is David Eastall. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond, and sometimes throwing the odd little curveball, because this week it's going to be the turn of the drummer and author Paul Hanley. He of The Fall from 1980 to 1985, and also now plays with Bricks and The Extricated. But he did a book that came out on Right Publishing a couple of years ago called Leave the Capital, a history of Manchester music in 13 recordings. So I did this interview with him, which was fascinating and he loved it and so did I. So that that makes life good. So um, what I'm going to do is play a track which is related to the book and then the interview. This is going to be The Hollies and I'm Alive. The Hollies with a track titled I'm Alive. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. At the end, I will tell you how you can contact me because we always love your messages, but let's not bore us. Let's get straight to the chorus. This is going to be the interview that I did with Paul Hanley, um, whose book titled Leave the Capital, a 
a history of Manchester music in 13 recordings. This is the interview and this is the first part where um, he slightly corrected me when I mentioned the title. I think I missed the A. But anyway, Paul, you can correct me now. Take it away. It's, it's important distinction. It's a history of Manchester music. It's not the history of Manchester music. It's a particular sort of windy route around Manchester music. It takes most of it in, I think, but it's deliberately not the history of Manchester music. It's an interpretation, shall we say. Yes. And and um, because obviously your background is, um, I say, well documented, but you are, you are a member of The Fall, which um, obviously there's one or two members of um, who used to be in The Fall. So you're, you've had a long history in music, um, plus you obviously have a big background in, in the sort of music scene in Manchester. So what was the um, inspiration for putting this book together? Uh, the, one of the, there was a couple really. One of them was that every kind of history of Manchester music, well, not every history, a lot of the histories of Manchester music, they thought they all start with that Sex Pistols uh, gig at the last Future Hall in 1976. And one of the main ideas of the book was to say, well, actually, Manchester music started quite a bit before that. Yes. And not only did it uh, start before that, but what went before fed into that and kind of made the Manchester scene. Um, that's what one of the things that made it as important as it was is that Manchester's kind of unique in that its artists from the 60s built these studios, which then meant that the artists from the 70s and 80s could record on home ground, which I'm, I'm pretty sure didn't really happen anywhere else. You don't get Echo and the Bunnymen recording their albums in Liverpool or, you know, you don't get somebody, you know, the Birmingham bands recording in Birmingham, certainly not at any properly professional level. So, which explains the title of the book, really. Yes, absolutely. And obviously, because um, sort of coming from the east of England, we've always had a... It's never. It's not a great music scene, unfortunately, because we haven't produced that many bands. Mm-hmm. And our legacy is um, pretty weak at the best of times. So we, we sort of live in great envy at the sort of the, the northwest. And I suppose for a lot of us, especially in my generation, who are in their 50s, I mean, obviously Manchester holds an amazing romantic quality doesn't it and i mean what was what would you say was the reason that manchester liverpool and the northwest just had such a creative sort of um kind of background i don't know i don't know i, I mean there's, there's the whole thing about the, the port and the docks and music coming from america which was the early 60s thing i suppose but i don't know what it is about um there isn't really an equivalent because I've said this before, you know, talking about Manchester Pistols, they didn't just, I mean, they played Manchester was one of the first places outside London. Yes. That, uh, but it wasn't the only place they played, you know, they played in uh, Nottingham and the, but, the, but the same thing didn't happen in, no. in other places. It wasn't, you know, 40, 20 people at that giggy wall went on to form like really important bands. It, it didn't happen. So I don't know really. It's a strange one. If it was, um, there's something in the air. I think in the northwest, yes, something musical in the air. There must be because obviously you know, like we sort of struggle. We've had you know such great bands as the Farmers Boys or the Higsons, and then a few other bands that have come and gone very quickly. But but not not that same sense of kind of dynamicness or sort of even. I suppose, you know, when, you know, obviously you've got those 60s bands that created the sort of music and the studios for the sort of bands that come along later. But, you know, the sound of people like the Smiths and the Joy Division and the Fall, obviously, were colossal, really. You know, it was, it was <clears> like, you know, we had not really heard anything like that before. So, obviously, you know, you're always going to be the place that we all look for. And I suppose people like John Peel were certainly had his finger on the cultural zeitgeist, hadn't he? Yes, 
yeah. mean, he'd be, you know, he was he started off as like, in the US, didn't he? He was like a DJ in the US. But um, one of the things he had, he did the difference between Peel and his contemporaries, I think, is he didn't kind of shut down his taste. Whereas, you know, I mean, lots of people are guilty of it, probably myself included. You get to a point in music where you think, this is what I like now. I'm not going out and carrying on uh, learning about new music. I mean, Mark Riley does it now, a friend of mine. He's on Radio 6, and he, I find it, I don't know how he gets the energy in some way. <laughs> to, to, you know, you know, do you know what I mean? To keep uh, exploring new music. And, you know, it's a fantastic thing to do, I think. Yes. But um, that was, I think, was the thing with Peel. But the thing people forget about, well, not forget about Peel, but... It wasn't just like a uh, Lydia. He didn't just like punk bands, or there was all kinds of stuff in there, you know. And if you, you know, to listen to John Peel to hear the latest session by Buscocks, you had to sit through a couple of hours of African music and Ivor Cutler. And he was, he, he went every way really in his musical tastes, which is, which is I think he, he is pretty much unique in that. Yes. Well, I, I sort of realised that, you know, because I went through that period. I suppose from the early 80s until he died, of sort of being a bit obsessed and recording his shows and sort of found myself sort of going to sort of bands, um, going to gigs by the Bundu Boys or the, all these mm-hmm. sort of the Four Brothers or sort of some hip hop band that, or act that he'd sort of um, played because I was just thinking, actually, that sounds really interesting. So I slightly went along with that journey that John Peel had yeah. where I wanted to listen to, in, uh, you know, the indie pop scene or go and see Napalm Death just because John, John Peel had played it and, yeah. you know, and sort of found it all really good. And, and unfortunately, when he died, there was nobody who particularly picked up that baton that I could trust like John Peel. So, yes. I'm not convinced that they would be let anyway. I don't, think, <laughs> I don't. I don't think you would. You would get a DJ because I mean, partly because of you know the prestige he was held in because he'd been there so long since the beginning of Radio One. I don't think they would give anybody that wider remit. I don't think. I don't think so. Yes. Not certainly not on a national radio station. I find it very hard to believe that anybody would get that. You know, you could play. You get people who play lots of different types of old music, yes. but. I don't think anybody would be saying you go in there and play any kind of new music you want, you know, if it's, you know, Russian sort of orchestral uh, underground music or whatever, and then you can play some African music, you can play whatever. But I don't think anyone would be let do it now. No, I agree. Actually. Sadly. I, th- I, th- I think some some people were quite relieved probably when he passed away. Thinking, well, <laughs> yes. we've, we've, <laughs> we've got rid of that. You know, we've yeah, he's, yeah. Been a, he's been a bit of a problem for us. But going back to your book, obviously there's one of the things that uh, people of my generation and age love, which is BBC Four on a Friday night with our sort of rock documentaries. And obviously yes. 10CC were, you know, surprisingly you know, fascinating. And a band that I didn't particularly um, yes, know much of their stuff. But their mm-hmm. story was fantastic and obviously um yes one of the members of 10cc plays a big part in the manchester scene well, t- well two of them really i mean if graham goldman uh, uh, you know probably more importantly yes. in that you know he wrote such amazing songs for the hollies and herman's hermits and lots of other bands and he was uh, but that was another motivating factor in the book was just just look at you, you look at the band 10cc and say, look at what they've done if you take this back to the 60s and look at what these four people have done up until the 80s it's i think it's they're unsurpassed really if you look at the songs they wrote in the 60s the songs they had hits with in the 60s you know big hit big hits in america eric stewart with the Mindbenders, and then you look at the built strawberry studio then then you look at the work 10cc did i'm not in love and things like that which are just incredible yes. and then you look at the work godly and cream did with video and it's just 
mind-blowing that those four people did that much between them. That's and what... I think it gets overlooked as well, I think. I don't think people realise well, that didn't. they've done that much. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I sort of had that huge appreciation after watching the documentary thing. Wow, you know, that was, you know, they were absolutely amazing. And also, you know, I'm a sucker for sort of the band, um, you know, the, the story of a band. Because there's this one particular show I do on the radio, which is the C86 show. I've been going mm -hmm. through all the indie bands from the 80s and a few, you know, elsewhere, but mostly the 80s. And, and most bands do have the five-year narrative, don't they? They get together. They do. They, they do the sort of sing. Well, they make a sound that they think, oh, this is quite good. And then they used to get the John Peel, you know, play and possibly session, do the album, Tricky Tour, Disastrous Second Album. And if they ever do America, that is often the thing that kills a band. So Yes. But <laughs> but, but certain bands do manage to sort of keep on going. And, and um, but what I also notice with a lot of those particular bands I've, you know, artists and musicians I've interviewed is that they almost don't want to think about music and definitely don't want to play music but but obviously with the characters that that formed the, the sound of the 60s and then sort of like record constructed these uh, studios obviously they they did sort of enjoy still being involved with the music business which often leaves yeah. a lot of people sort of quite damaged really it does i mean and it can't be overstated that not many people in the 60s did it i mean it was only there was only really I mean, there was other people around the country, but if you're looking at Manchester, there was only there was the two guys like Herman's Hermits, Keith Hopwood and uh, Derek Lackenbit, and uh, Goldman and Stewart and Peter Tattersall who worked with them. Who, they started them studios, and nobody else did. Everyone else sort of said, right, well, you know, a lot. There was a big. I think there was a big choice towards the end of the sixties, yeah. and a lot of those artists kind of went into cabaret, and then, but they they, they decided they were going to do something different and. That one of the big things of the book was to say, look, look, look at what these people did. You know, look at Keith Hopwood. He started a studio upstairs from Strawberry, and he moved it into the centre of Manchester. And, that, and then the Smiths' first album was recorded right smack in the middle of Manchester, thanks to someone from Herman's Hermits deciding that he wasn't just gonna, you know, take the money and run. He was gonna do something with it. And another thing that doesn't get uh, noted about uh, Pluto and Keith Hopwood, he, he had a kind of advertising revenue that he used to make with Granada, he used to do advert voice, uh, sounds for advert, and he used that to kind of subsidise new music in a way. You know, Rough Trade came in and recorded The Fall there and The Smiths there. Yes. And, you know, so, it, I mean, I'm not saying for an instant that everything he did was altruistic and he did it all to give music back, but he did it, and not, not a lot of other people else did, so... Yes. And that isn't out there. I mean, there's a fair bit, you know, about Strawberry and it's celebrated. There's a fair bit out there, but there's nothing as far as I could see that about that story of Herman's Hermits, which is another fantastic story, the story of Herman's Hermits from beginning to end, you know, yes. how Mickey Most gave them these silly songs that made that were absolutely massive, but kind of killed their credibility, really. Yes, this is always tricky. And also... Um... What you were saying there, sort of, I suppose about Manchester, you also had characters like Tony Wilson came along, didn't you, as well? Yes. Who had, yeah, a, I huge, mean, who had a huge influence and uh, kind of cultural significance to the scene as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a very famous quote from Tony Wilson where he says, you know, why, how was Martin Anna able to do get these four lads and record them in Manchester because... 10cc ploughed the money back in and enabled him to do it you know and there's a certain element of that with him really he kind of used his cultural uh heft to build something Manchester as well when you look at the you know they, they didn't have to do it you know factory didn't have to 
you know, they didn't have to start a label, they didn't have to start the Hacienda, they didn't have to plough all the money back into things. I mean, you know, they might have been misguided in the, some of the money they spent on the Hacienda, but <laughs> it's one of them. Yes. Do you want to be rich or do you want to be important? It was one of the yes. things Tony Wilson said. And also, I mean, with all those situations, I suppose we can be wise after the event, but, you know... Well, yes. The madness... I mean, I've, I've, I know, you, you're never going to make... Uh, a lot of money from a club that invites a, a massive criminal element and a load of people who aren't drinking. You're never going to make a lot of money on that, are you? But uh, who who knew at the time? Yes, no, this is true, actually. And obviously you've sl- you know, slipped back into the music scene as well, haven't you? Or you might not have yes. ever slipped out. But I, I sort of interviewed... I'm not sure slipped's the right word, but yes, I'm still playing. <laughs> We've got, um, got a band together with well, my brother, Steve, and Bricks, who we were in, we were in the fall together for a time, a yes. couple of years maybe. Um, we've also got Steve Trafford, who was in the fall later on from us, and Jason Brown, who's played with me and Steve for years. We played in a band with Tom from the Inspiral Carpets. And so yeah, we, we got together and we started. We've we got an album out. We're touring at the moment. And the, I mean, obviously, and, and sort of, I interviewed Brits quite recently, and um, she seemed as surprised and excited to be back in music as. Um, well, she, I suppose most of her friends probably thought, I didn't think you'd ever play a guitar and let alone get behind a mic. So it must have been quite nice to sort of, I suppose, get back together and um, and sort of feel creative again. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I, I didn't, to be, um, without being brutally honest, I didn't have as uh, a massive drive to get on and be... I, you know, I'm quite happy not being in a band really but it's it's nice to be able to reclaim some of that stuff you know the, some of the fall stuff and then it's really nice to be able to record a new album it's a it's quite a luxury in this day and age for someone to say we'd like you to record an album and go away and do it and let us know you know which blang have done the record label to you know god bless them you know they've said but well, they want to hear our album we we presented it to them and they've got right behind it which is quite Unusual if in this day and age, I think. Yes. But to have a record, a record company behind you believes you to the believes you to the point that they'll just put it out, you know. And yes. it's it's a very nice thing. I can't say it's not. Yes. And what would you, after decades of being in and out of music and publishing books and and studying stuff, what would you say to your eighteen year old self starting out in in the rocky world of rock and roll? I well, I've, 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 a lot of people well. Few people ask me what about being a band. And I, well, the only thing I can say, and it applies a lot even more now than it did when I was eighteen, is if you want to be in a band, go and do it. But really, really, don't expect to make any money out of it. If you go into a band with the idea that you love being in music, then you'll have a great time. If you look in, if you're looking at it for any kind of career, you've had it really, especially now. Yes, I think I think it's impossible. And obviously, you you know, we've seen the pictures of Marky Smith recently on stage. Yeah. In a wheelchair. How do you know? What What do you all sort of feelings about that? How, you know, what, how do you sort of feel about that? About what? About him going on stage in a wheelchair? Well, just or the fact about... he he well, not not so much the wheelchair, but just he he does look a bit rough, doesn't he? He doesn't. He doesn't look well. But then you know, uh, one thing you can say about Mark E. Smith, and I think it's probably true, is nobody's telling him what to do. <laughs> whether it's his doctors, whether it's his girlfriend, whether it's the rest of his band, nobody's telling him what to do. So. I would imagine that the last time he left his doctors, the the, the guy didn't say you, you need to get back on stage as soon as possible. But then you know it's it's his life, yes. And you know that's what he does, and that's what he's always done. And I can't see him stopping any time soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, look, Paul, thank you ever so much for your time for this, and thanks. Um, yeah, the book has been fascinating, and you know I've sort of become one of those music nerds who 
kind of just love reading, you know, books on this. And I was excited because yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, it's just going to be a bit of a sort of normal history of music. And then it's like, oh, no, this is completely different. So it's been, you know, it's been nice. And like, you know, like I said, well, after sort of watching that documentary on um, 10CC, sort of having a, a complete different idea of the band and the, and the yeah. members. And, and sort I mean, of... I'll be honest, they were never massively on my radar, to be honest. <laughs> uh, they weren't. I mean, I knew of them, but I, I, mean, I started on to write the story of the studios, really. And it was only when I sort of really started researching it and you start going back to, you know, what they did before. And then you start thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible story, really, and really, really interesting. And not one that's been told in, well, hopefully not in the way that I told it in this book, I don't think. I don't think so, anyway. It, it, like, there is that documentary about 10CC, which you say, but it kind of just skims over the pretense you see doesn't it yeah it just they get a quick mention but nothing nothing to say that graham goldman was as culturally significant in the 60s as he was in the 70s you know and you could say like you know you've got you've got i'm not in love here which is just mind-blowingly good in my opinion but you know they were they didn't land on that the day before and they would they had a big history and they were they were successful musicians all the way through Yes. And the fact that they carried it on and in their own building is just, it's a unique story, I think. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I do remember sort of obviously listening to John Peel and he'd always mentioned the producer of all those Peel sessions, which was Dale Griffiths. Mm -hmm. And um, you sort yeah. of, you know, for years I didn't know I have a clue who he was. And it was, oh, he was Mott the Hoople drummer. Buffin, yeah. Yeah, and you think, oh, OK, this is what, you know, musicians, artists, you know, go on and do after they've been in the band, you know, they, they Not produce... Not many of them do, though. Not do, that many of them do. Don't You'd they? You'd be surprised. <laughs> you always hope they do, you know, because obviously, you know, he's got the experience and what he had the experience yeah. and, you mm -hmm. know, and most of those John Peel sessions was often better than the, the studio albums bands brought out. I'm, you know, I must admit with the, the Smiths' first album was, I thought the sound of it was a bit hit and miss, whereas Hatful of Hollow I did, uh, yeah. was Hatful of Hollow was just I thought, oh yeah, that's an amazing, you know, whoever produced that was really on the ball. So Yeah, well I I always think with that the Smiths, that first album, it was recorded far too quickly, I think. Far not I don't mean they weren't in the studio long enough. I meant it was far too early in their career, I think, for them to record an album. Yeah. Because one of the things they were kind of victims of their own sort of uh, hustle really, because they got signed to Rough Trade and they got Peel Sessions and they got they got big gigs nearly enough immediately. And it was because, I mean, they fully deserved it. Don't get me wrong, they were good enough as a band. But I think they need, I think personally that they needed a bit more time to bed yeah. in before they recorded the first album. But... Well, I might be wrong. <laughs> well, no, no, I, no, I, no, I'm, you know, I'm a bit obsessed with the Smiths, and that first album still sounds a bit sort of, I don't know, not painful, but it's not something that you particularly jump to, you know, compared to some of the latter stuff, and especially that, the, you know, the the album, you know, Hatful Hollow, which is all the sessions, because it just sounds, mm -hmm. has a better sound. But then, you know, a lot of bands, you know, that I've interviewed, often that first single, first EP is a bit rough and then they sort of learn how to uh, play the instruments and I suppose yeah. people like the Beatles you know you know the early few releases and then you know they're ham after Hamburg they come back and they've got a you know much better sound so well yeah by the time the Beatles made the first album they were, that, uh, it's been said before they were probably one of the most experienced bands in the world weren't they they had more time on stage than anybody I think yes. between Hamburg and uh, the the cavern and the gigs they were doing. They, they, no, I don't think anybody on, on the planet played quite as live as many times as they had by the time they recorded the first album. And you can tell. Yes. You can tell by the album. Well, it's the same. It's, with... like, the old, it's like the old Ruttles thing, isn't it? The first album they recorded in 20 minutes, the second one took even longer. <laughs> 
Yes, this is true. But then, you know, when I used to, you know, sort of listen to people talking like Black Sabbath or, or even Motorhead, you know, they often had to just, you know, spend, a f- they only had a few hours in the studio, so they really had to know what they were doing. Yeah, they, that's they, right. They had rehearsed and played those songs so much, it wasn't really anything difficult. It was just like, all right, okay, we've got 20 minutes, we've got to do Motorhead. No, no, that's right. You know, I, think, so, I think a lot of the time, open-ended recording is deadly for a band. I think it's a real, real trap to get into is to not have a, a, a finite amount of time to make your product. If you go in the studio and just say, off you go, I think a lot of the time it's really difficult to say that's done now. You know, if if, if you've got to be out by five o'clock on the Friday, then you're going to get it done by five o'clock on the Friday. And it's not impossible, yeah. you know. I think um, Sergeant Pepper's not a bad album, <laughs> and they had all the time in the world. And, you know, the 10CC is another good example. But I think it's difficult. I think it's harder to say, okay, take as long as you want, and then you know. I mean, I could say some people, better pe- better people than I, certainly can do it. Fleetwood Mac managed it with rumours, but it's hard, I think. Yes. I mean, look at the Stone Roses second album, you know. Or not. If they'd have had a week, if they'd have had a week to do that album, I'm sure it would have been a better album. This is true. Well, we always remember the uh, half man, half biscuit track Eno collaboration, which kind of summed it all up, really. This, <laughs> and uh, I know I think Brian Eno is good. He, I think, some of the albums he's worked on and just you know be like, yeah. But there was an album by James that disappeared, and it was like you know, it was an Eno collaboration or produced yeah. by you know, and it yeah, was yeah. a bit like it was the same as the Stone Roses. It was like they could have done it in a week and saved us the yeah. misery of hoping it was going to be interesting and it was like someone yeah. had to say actually this is really quite dull really <laughs> well yeah and i think the other thing with the stone roses is, is i think they've kind of got it so that they build up i mean in fact you know it's called the second coming they build up and it's even now they, they, they got to the point where they can't bring out another album now really because the weight of expectation is that high yes. that it's never going to live up to it yeah, I think I think that's what the problem with them is. If they'd have, if they'd have banged out six albums in the time, you know, one of them, a couple of them might have been poor, but you just carry on, don't you? You know, that's yes. it. If you if you bring out an album once every eight, ten years, it's got to be amazing, or you're just going to get crucified for it. I think. Well, I, sp- I suppose you know when we we were looking at David Bowie's career a few years ago after he died, it was like you suddenly realised, God, oh, you did an album of the year plus plus you did you know Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, then you relocated twice, did several world tours and recon- you know had several different bands, yeah. and you thought, wow, that's that is quite something, Mr. Bowie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes. I think it's a you're on a you're on a uh, bad path if you start trying to say why can't people be more like David Bowie. I think because there was no one like David was there? Yes. I don't think. And that was my interview stroke chat with Paul Hanley. And as I said, one time member of The Fall from 1980 to 85, and also now plays with Bricks and The Extricated. And um, this is the book that you need to buy Leave the Capital A History of Manchester Music in 13 Recordings. And that's come out on Wright Publishing. Check it out, buy it, it might just change your life. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Oh yes, if you want to contact me, this bit of admin, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to at C86 Show. And also all these shows have been archived on podcast land. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. Yes, I remember the fourth one. Anyway, do check them out. I've been doing it for three years. There's an awful lot of interviews there. But I will leave you with another track 
from that golden area, era, area region of uh, Manchester, England. Anyway, this is going to be 10cc and I'm not in love. I bet that surprised you. Anyway, have a great week. I know you.